This is the Robert Hanna Show. And boom, we are live with John Griffith, also known as Griff. Thanks so much for being here, man. It's great to have you. I'm glad to be here. So we were talking a little bit before the podcast about there's a story that just came out, and from all accounts, man, this looks super legit. Scary. Yeah. The story is there's a man who basically was in the remote Tuva region of Russia, and he was attacked by a brown bear. And during the attack, he's you know basically had multiple injuries, including a broken back. It looked like he had some zombification too. <laughs> when I saw the picture, and he like they're like, "What's your name?" And he opens that one eye, and it's like opening some place where you think I shouldn't be. And he's like Alexander. I was like, "Oh God!" Put him out of his so misery. so after the attack, the brown bear drags him back to its cave and basically keeps him alive for a future meal. That's just crazy shit. I mean, have you ever heard of anything like that? Or uh, the even the closest thing that I've heard to that is uh, it was also in Russia, where a bear like wounded this person. I can't remember if it was a man or a woman, but they wounded this person, and then uh, the cubs came and like played with the person. And they left as if they were going to come back, and the cubs were going to learn how to kill their prey on this wounded person that couldn't escape. Oh. Um, but that's the closest I've ever heard to that. But you know. Animals cache food, so man, I, that's I mean that's the craziest thing that I've ever heard in terms of a bear attack connected to a human. And you know, if you think about it, uh, it's that happened in Russia, and it's like worldwide, international news. Like whenever there's a predator that attacks a human, it gets news, it gets media. And I'm wearing a people could see me. I'm wearing a P22 shirt, and P22 is the mountain lion that's in Griffith Park in the middle of LA. So this urban park, and there's a mountain lion, you know there, right. and people are really freaked out about predators. And I think it's interesting to explore why this story captivates us so much. When there's like, you know, probably why we've been talking. There's probably been someone who died in Sacramento in a car crash, you know, or something right. like that. That's not going to make international news because it happens all the time. But I think if there's more to it than that. If we went back to Paleolithic times, that would be front page news as a bear attack in a person because that's for hundreds of thousands of years. That's often how we died. You know, we were living with saber-toothed tigers, scimitar cats, mammoths, teratorns, uh, short-faced bears, which make grizzly bears look like teddy bears. Right. You know, so like we have it in our genes, I believe, to like really uh, blow up stories like that because it speaks to our like instincts, something with fangs and teeth dragging us to a cave and keeping us alive for like a midnight snack. Well, and it's amazing to also look and to see how our actions as humans have changed the behaviors Mm -hmm. of all of these animals. Yeah. And it's... Yeah, including a lot of them becoming nocturnal that weren't historically nocturnal just to avoid us and our machines. But I think that it also speaks to the importance of being able to coexist with wildlife and coexist with predators like we want to sterilize especially we see this in the United States as concerns to like our cattle ranching we want to sterilize our public lands we want to chase out the mountain lions and the wolves and the grizzly bears because they scare us and they eat um, our livestock like we want a sterile wilderness but that's not the spirit of wilderness mm-hmm. and we do not have to sterilize everything you know from our from our houses to our hospitals to our wilderness we're just on the sterilization kick and removing predators Um, from the forest and from wilderness landscapes is like part of that sterilization process. And I think it's wrong. 
when we get into a car, we put on our seatbelt. We have airbags. We are prepared for something that might go wrong. The same thing needs to be said about when we go out into the wilderness. We have to be prepared. Take some bear spray. Go over what you're going to do if you are attacked by a grizzly bear with the people you're with. You know, together, you know, you can beat this bear, you know, hopefully. Right. So, um, you know, I think part of what Alexander's problem was, and that's the dude who looked zombified as he's, like, identifying himself after a month in bear cave. Right. <laughs> um, he was probably alone, and he probably wasn't armed. When you go someplace, you can't expect um, a super literate riding hood of you to go out into the wilderness and expect nothing's going to happen to you. Yeah. You know, you don't go out, you don't, anytime you go outdoors, you should be prepared. Yeah. And so I think that we can, we can coexist with bears and mountain lions. I mean, I spend almost a third of my year in tent. Um, I have backpacked through Siberia. Um, I've had tons of bear counters, grizzly bear counters in Alaska, um, black bear counter encounters all the time in Northern California, and I've never been bit. In fact, you know what scares me? What's that? Ticks and yellow jackets. (laughs) Bears, nah. (laughs) So now you've dedicated your entire life to conservation and working with animals. Mm -hmm. You've literally worked alongside and or mentored thousands of young adults coming from all sorts of different challenging backgrounds. Mm -hmm. You've written a book. You've hosted a show on Animal Planet. Is this something that you always have known that you wanted to do, or how did it get to this point for you? You know, I've always fantasized about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if, you know, some people are like, well, if you fantasize about it, you called it to yourself. <laughs> I'm not sure if I believe that, but it's happened. Um, I, when I was young, um, I got interested in the wilderness and wildlife in a very, very urban trailer park. And, um, not very, very urban, but an urban trailer park in the Bay Area. And my grandma lived in this super paved trailer park. And she had like a little, I don't know, as big as this room. So like 15 by 15 or whatever, you know, spot of soil. And she turned it into this amazing flower vegetable garden with little ponds and rocks and, and upside down broken pots. And one of my earliest memories is being like three, you know, you still have the big old head, you know, and I'm holding her hand because my head's so heavy and we're going down <laughs> these like rickety mobile home steps and we get to the grass. My grandma was Irish and she had that like stereotypical Irish sense of humor and she's like, I can call toads. <laughs> and I totally believed her. <laughs> and, and she did these weird, you know, like, and made all these weird motions with her arms. And then she's like, go look under the pot. And I went and looked under the pot and there was this toad. It was fascinating. And I, you know, picked it up and it peed all over me. And she's like, maybe you'll get warts. <laughs> and uh, so I had to watch my hand all the time to see if I got warts. And I knew at that moment that I wanted to be able to call toads. So your grandmother was a huge influence. My grandmother and my mother, yeah. In, in introducing you to the outdoors. Huge, and in an urban area. You know, right. so a lot of people think, well, I live in Sacramento, or I live in LA, or I live in Philadelphia. There's no way I'm gonna be able to introduce my kids to the nature bullshit. Yeah. You know, yes, you can. Um, there's a bird flying over your head in Philadelphia right now. Look at it, identify, oh, it's just a pigeon. No, it is a creature that is flying through the air with feathers, that is fascinating. So, like, getting into whatever's there, start from with where you're at, you know, and that's where I got interested in nature. That's so interesting. And then from that point, it just, it seems like it escalated. Every- it did. When I was um, when I was 11 or 12, you know, when you're 11 and 12, and like, well, at least in the 80s, we played outdoors. So, we were always outside. We didn't have 
we had three channels, you know, and one of them played kids shows like for an hour or something, two hours. So I played outside, and I was always trying to impress the older boys because you either impress them or they beat you up, you know. So you had right. to, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> right. So one day they were shooting stuff, and I didn't know what they were shooting, but um, it was well known that I was the best climber in the neighborhood. So it's like they were shooting something, and they're like, "Hey, you're that one little you know white kid that climbs really good. Go up on the roof and throw down." the birds. And so I was like, oh, chance to impress. And I got up there and there was dead birds all over that roof. And one of them was still alive. And it looked at me and I just, you know, I grew up around hunters, but all the hunters that I grew up around, like my grandpa and my uncles, I mean, my father hunted a little bit. Um, you know, we had an ethic. You shot it, you ate it. Right. And this was just shooting for enjoyment. And it sickened me. And one of them was still alive. So I grabbed the one that was still alive. I climbed back down. I like busted through them. I wasn't scared of them anymore. Like I'd like, wasn't trying to beat him up because I would have lost that day. Right. But I ran home, and once I got into my house, I started crying because I couldn't show that shit outside. And um, my mom saw how upset I was, and she had seen this article about a wildlife rehabilitation center, Susan Wildlife Care Center, took me down there, and they let me volunteer. So I was one of the youngest volunteers they ever had, and I did that for four years, so volunteering at a wildlife rehab center. And that's really where all the interest and intrigue around wildlife kind of like you know, got introduced into like science and care and rehabilitation and ecology. And um, that's kind of where it, it all happened. It's like fascinating solidified. because, you know, you talk about you being exposed to the outdoors by your grandmother and your mother. Mm -hmm. And then yet there again is an example where your mother mm -hmm. takes you to mm -hmm. yet another experience, which pulls you even more and more into your passion of the outdoors. Yeah. You know, parents and grandparents can plant seeds like they really can. My mom and grandma were the two that were planting seeds in my life. And I did that for four years. And once I got like um, turning 15 and 16, they could see at the Wildlife Care Center, they could see that like um, that I was going down the wrong path at that time because I was entering this other part of my, my life that we can hit on if you want. But um, they were like concerned that I was going to start stealing scales. And so they're like, why don't you come back when you're overdoing whatever you're doing? And that was a heartbreaking moment, but I got it. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm talking about is that, you know, I eventually joined the California Conservation Corps, but the reason why I did is because I kind of went off, you know, like a lot of young people do, like you did, and like several right. other people who are listening to this did. Like I went on, I was angry kid, and while nature was a source of comfort for me, I wasn't in it all the time. You know, there was nature around, like we talked about, but I was in the city, and I had city pressures, and I had a really, really strict father who I was rebelling against, and um, and I kind of turned my back on my wildlife conservation interest and got super interested in meth and alcohol and any other way to get high. And wow. so that's kind of ended my wildlife care center career at that point. And when you're going through that, you have obviously now a lot of negative influences feeding into super you know, negative and losers. And at that point, did your family, were they trying to pull you away? Did they know what was going on? Well, you know, even though my father was a cop, meth was kind of a new trip at that time. So he couldn't even tell that I was on it. Like all of a sudden it's like, oh, our son who's, you know, would never clean his room and complained about chores is up at 2 a.m. cleaning his room and doing right. all his chores. You know, like, and it never dawned on anybody like maybe he's on speed because like it was a new trip. And so I was able to start on that. Um, and 
I no longer, like, my father was very strict. His rules were no longer working for me. So I ran away the first time when I was 15. Wow. And um, lived with some of the people who were feeding me meth, who were adults and had their own little, like, twisted interests. Right. And wanting to feed a 15-year-old drugs. And um, that's... uh, And my dad was kind of like, this is the 80s. My dad's like, you're, you know, you're old enough to run away. Bye. Right. You know, (laughs) so... So you mentioned during that point you're you're then fortunate to get connected to the California Conservation Corps mm-hmm. and can you talk about how the process what was the process of you know going from that to starting to get back on the right track well you know when you spend 3 years and it was like 15 to 18 thank god it was 15 to 18 cuz I had a lot I had a lot less to lose back then i mean i ended up dropping out of high school and getting kicked out of I mean, like Getting, going back to my house, you know, after running away and getting kicked out and, like, just bombing my family out. My family were good people, you know, like, they tried. And it wasn't because they were horrible people that I went off, you know, deep end. But um, I was angry for a lot of reasons. And I always knew during that time that I wasn't supposed to be in the city. And I always had this thing in my mind where if I had been uh, raised in the country, this wouldn't be happening, and if I could, you know, be in the wilderness, this wouldn't be happening. And I told a couple of friends, one of them, his name was Ronnie Rickoff. And he said, well, I'm joining the California Conservation Corps. You should join it with me. And he actually turned 18 before I, I, I did. And so he went and um, was supposedly doing really, really well. And so I was, you know, still, I did, I was doing partying, every kind of drug, especially meth, all the way up until the day I joined the CCC. So I joined the CCC and uh, arrived there on meth. And they knew it instantly, you know, because the C1s, the supervisors, they'd been around the block. They weren't naive. And so they're just like, you're tweaking. <laughs> you're a tweaker. And, wow. you, and if you want to stay in the program, you got to go to NA. So I went to, I stayed in the program and worked really hard and got tons of support. Went to NA every night for like four months and um, got clean. That's that's incredible. I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible story. And like you said, there, there's so many people that are going through things. Mm-hmm. And when you get to a point where you yourself are able to come out of a situation which is so negative yeah. and which is so life-changing, it's incredible when you get to look back and see the certain moments that happened that were there for you yeah. to get you to that point. Yeah, and thank God they were there. You know, the CCC had the perfect backdrop for my transformation. Like I was in the woods every day. They they stationed me in Mendocino County. I was building trails up by Lake Pillsbury, Mendocino National Forest, and I I felt different. I like I got to see birds whenever I wanted to see birds. I got to see trees. I got to see them interact. I got to see you know fish spawning. And all these things that I've always knew that I wanted, and I finally was there. And it was really easy for me once I got away from my community. Sometimes it's you need to get away from your community for a while. Sometimes permanently. For me, it was permanently. For other people, I think just getting out of your community for a while. But all the negative influences I had were in the community I grew up in. So when I got removed from them, that's where I was able to heal. And I think that's part of the magic of the California Conservation Corps is that you could go to a residential center hundreds of miles from your community and be removed from those negative you know, or distressful situations and actually start some transformation. I think that's one of the most powerful things about the CCC. I think you're right. Um, you know, going back, you had mentioned, you know, I, our stories are similar in, in many ways where as you look back, 
you know, even when I was going through a lot of the stuff that I did growing up, the outdoors was always there for me. Mm-hmm. And that's the one consistent. I had been exposed to it when I was younger. I had gone through my stuff. And when I was coming out of it, I knew that to remove myself, I had to get away from the atmosphere that I was in on the streets and that those places were there for me where I didn't have to face those temptations. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There's there's very few opportunities like that out there for people. So to find one, it's uh, it's life changing. Yeah. And it's it, it's really incredible to listen to how that one opportunity you could look back and it was life saving. Yeah. Just that. It's like if you want a stick to stop smoldering, you got to pull it out of the flame. You know, and that's kind of was what it was for me. I got put, I got pulled out of those flames, and I was able to like chill out for a while. And then once I started doing service, like once I started, you know, helping the environment because we planted lots of lots of native trees, and we were helping getting people out in the outdoors by building trails, and we were doing handicap accessible or excuse me, ADA accessible campgrounds. Uh, I felt like I had a sense of purpose, which is really important to me. Or maybe it's because my personality type. Maybe it's because I was raised by my mom and grandma who also like need a sense of purpose. But when I felt like I was in service to my community and the environment, I felt even more empowered. And so it was, it got easier and easier for me to shed some of these like dark areas. And it, <clears throat> not just the, like the drug use and the alcohol, but the anger that that all stemmed from mm-hmm. um, being in nature and doing things for others. And, you know, the environment or people gave me the strength to overcome the anger that was driving all that, you know, unhealthy behavior. Right. And at what age did you first say you uh, got into the uh, CCC? I had, had just turned 18. Gotcha. Yeah. So as you're going through this whole process, you know, you're you're coming out of this um, you know, what were some of the things, I mean, it, it sounds like that you were now tasked with a responsibility that you started to feel better about yourself. Mm-hmm. You're starting to really shed a lot of those negative influences. Yeah. Did they, were they still there? Were they still trying to get to you? Or? Well, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like it was like wham, bam, I'm, I'm healed. Like, uh, basically the meth portion of it was removed. Um, I still partied all through my twenties and still struggled with, um, alcohol at times and other things, but, um, it, I was on a trajectory of healing. So, mm-hmm. but it did, it didn't happen like snap, but it did happen like snap And that. And what I mean by that is you know, like getting rid of the meth, like the, the big ones, which I would consider like heroin, meth, and the ad- addictive ones that will change your body and mind and just like totally screw you up. So the heavy drug, I stopped doing heavy drugs. And then, um, but I still had like I still had a lot of things to undo from my childhood right? And so and to replace. And so that's what my 20s were about. And I did that in nature. And I don't think I would have been able to do it in an urban setting. I felt like for me and who I am and the type of things that were bothering me that I had to be not only being in nature, but also in service to my community and to the environment. Like so a lot of times the way that I help myself is by helping others because it makes me feel better about myself and then I can see my problems more clearly or whatever. But um, so the CCC started that, California Conservation Corps started that, and then I continued what I learned, like the service to my community and to the environment. I stuck with that theme, all for you know eleven years of traveling and being a seasonal employee from for the Nature Conservancy, for Wildlife Conservation Society, for the Forest Service, for state parks. Um, worked on a fishing boat in Alaska. Um, that was more of exploration than service, though, with the part in Alaska. Yeah, but um. 
and then coming back, and now I'm a supervisor for the California Conservation Corps. And so I'm trying to now, because I'm so grateful that, um, I'm so grateful for programs that believe in distressed youth, you know, and stressed out youth and, and wayward youth, whatever you want to call it, that gave me a chance and um, that I wanted to be part of that solution. Yeah, it feels like that it, in looking at it, it's sort of like a pipeline to opportunity mm-hmm. for so many. Yeah, um, so many. Yeah, and lots of us. And it's 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 incredible to see that you know you having gone through that. It's, it, I just I love it because you're in a position now to not only look for the signs in others that may mm-hmm. be going through something else, but you're able to connect with so many more because of your experiences, because of your story. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's, that's so important for all of the young adults that are going through something, that mm-hmm. they have somebody to identify um, in many different ways, in many different situations. Yeah. It's because I can come at them as a work in progress. Like we're, So we're operating on the work in progress to work in progress kind of, you know, I, uh, I I do understand them because I was in a similar situation as them, but I still am. Like I still consider myself a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the way that I mentor these youth is I tell them like we're in this journey together. Like I'm I'm not done trying to be a better person. I want to see how that's it. How cool and how much better I can get. <laughs> you know. So I'm still in this I'm still in this process. And so coming with that humility, where I'm not taking myself too seriously, like, right. Um, where I'm also a work in progress. And I'm a late bloomer in a lot of ways too, you know? So some of these young people that I work with, I'm learning from them. Some of them are way more emotionally intelligent than I've ever dreamed of being. Some of them have super high IQs. Some of them are just, have this really interesting, you know, unique way of looking at things that helps flip my perspective. So we're doing this together. And I think that that's um, really important when mentoring youth is to know that the mentoring goes both ways. Sure. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, you know, just as much as they need you, you're right. Mm-hmm. You know, you need them. I'm still a work in progress. And I, I think it's just wonderful that, you know, I love your approach that every day you should be doing something to become the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and as we go through this life, it, it you should always be looking to be better and, and give back in, in so many ways. And as we ta- as I said before, I mean, you. It's interesting because how that opportunity has now put you into a position where you get to do something that you're so passionate about every day, mm-hmm. and now you are the mentor, and you you have literally worked alongside and mentored thousands of young adults, mm-hmm. and it's just incredible to to see. And that's that's the beauty of life, I guess. We just go through certain things in our life, and then, you know, if you're fortunate enough to get through them, you can look back, and now you really see that, you know, the, the responsibility that you have is changing lives. Yeah, and trying to be as creative as possible at connecting. And um, it's funny because, you know, like – you mentioned in the introduction, like I became this Animal Planet host, and I, you know, got all these awesome opportunities, and got to be on a bunch of podcasts, and have articles about me, and been on, you know, TV and stuff. And where that all came from was working with these youth. Um, I made a I made a video with them. Yeah, this is a fascinating story. <laughs> this is, I mean, this this really touches on where we're at today. Where at any moment, 
you know, the internet has given us the, you know, the ability where our life changes at the snap of a finger. So this is an incredible story. I love. So one of the things about being a mentor, especially being a white male, a big white male mentor who's hairy and wears a cowboy hat, like people have no idea that I grew up, (laughs) you know, and so, and most of the youth who I work with don't look like that. You know, they, California Conservation Corps is as diverse, if not more diverse than California. And so um, I have to be, I need to gain people's trust in order for the mentoring to take place. And I have to, I have to be relevant. Mm-hmm. And when you're twice their age and white and hairy, sometimes it's hard for them to imagine you ever being relevant because you look a whole lot like a cop or a teacher or someone where they have, you know, they're 18 years old. They don't have a lot of experiences with people. Right. And so um, building that trust and that rapport, like it could take a really long time, but I only have a year. They're only in the program for a year, so I, I don't have time to mess around. And so I've thought about creative ways. And so one of the ways that I do it is that people look at me and don't, you know, like they don't imagine that I ever grew up in an urban area. But I can dance. I can beatbox. I can, <laughs> I can do things. <laughs> and so um, so they don't know that when they see me. And so, like, I show them I'm culturally relevant. And then it's interesting because they get a rapport and all of a sudden I'm, I'm accessible. Right. Like I'm not this, like – Grizzly Adams dude who's out here like, you know. The supervisor, yeah, the hall monitor. Yeah, I'm not getting drugged to a cave for a month and, right. you know, that's bear food. Well, hopefully not. But um, so one day we were cleaning up this kitchen, this remote facility where we are camping at. We were doing salmon habitat restoration during the day, but we were staying at this facility and we had just eaten breakfast around cleaning up and they had some music on, uh, some hip-hop music on and they were all cleaning and dancing. And um, I was going to videotape them and um, one of my core members says, you know, why don't you get in there? Why don't you dance? Because they'd see me do a couple of little moves, you know, because I used to be a B-boy, you know. So I'd just do like a little right. wavy arm thing for him once in a while. Right. <laughs> but um, they're like, get in there. So I did this whole, like, I danced. And they loved it. So there was uh, Leonard Patton and Antoine McCoy were in there. And they loved it. And Antoine hugs me. has the split hugs. And this is all on video. And I watched the video with them. Now we're out in the creek, you know, doing salmon habitat restoration. They're like, let's look at that video of you dancing. And I looked at it. And I had my hand on the delete button. And I'm like, I'm going to delete this. And I didn't know anything about social media. I got the camera and got the YouTube because they wanted their moms to see the stuff we do. You know, so I got this. I got into social media because they wanted their families to see what we were doing. So um, I was like, I'm going to delete this. Um, and they're like, why? And I was like, because no one needs to see a fat cowboy dancing. Right. <laughs> and they're like, oh, but our moms do. Everybody's always trying to hook me up with their mom. You know what right. I'm saying? So I was like, I'm like, <laughs> everybody's trying to hook me up with their mom. So, um, so I was like, all right, tell your moms they have two weeks. Because I was embarrassed of how I looked, you know? And so. That's so crazy. It is now, but at the time I can remember. Right. And so, like, I uploaded it, and I remember uploading it, looking at it on YouTube, and be like, "Wow, oh, man, like this is embarrassing." Like, I, you know, got to work the next day. I was like, "Tell your mom to hurt and look at that," you know. And at the time, I was working with Akima Price. On uh, Akima Price wrote um, "What's Good in My Hood," which is like an environmental education guide for like super urban kids. And I was working with her on some community guidelines for like an EPA funded. Process. This is after I wrote my book, Total Magic Going Mad. So I was already mm-hmm. doing like diversity and inclusion work. And she saw that and she said, That is cultural relevancy in action. Don't you ever take that video down. And she's like, Leave that there. I'm going to show that at a talk I'm giving, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh, this has value. Okay. And then people were like laughing at it and stuff and saying, This is really cool. And this is the kind of stuff, that, you know, you know, this is the kind of stuff we need to see. Like, this is like, this is showing like um, you being relevant. And so and I was like, authentic. Yeah. And so it was like, 
I was like, oh, this is just this is what I do. Like I do this, like you know, every six months or so, I have to bust out the dance moves, right. and show, you know. <laughs> so, um, and so one day I came home from work, and um, I'm, I get on my computer, and there's like, I still didn't understand social media at this time, and I see all these like notifications and stuff, and people going, look at your YouTube channel, look at my YouTube channel, it and just there's like exploded, and it like there was a thousand views in the morning, and now there's three hundred thousand views, and then I like whoa, and then I clicked on it again, now there's four hundred thousand views, I'm like whoa, now there's five hundred thousand views, my phone rings, and it was roommate from Outdoor Afro, and she's like, your video is going viral, and you're gonna get contacted by the media, and you need to keep it real. Wow. And I was like, so I'm thinking, oh, Ukiah Daily Journal, you know, my hometown, they're going to call me tomorrow. And she's like, oh, no, baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. And so she, she's like, what are you about? And I said, I'm about, you know, dedicating my life to wildlife conservation and youth development. And she's like, That's where you need to keep it. So the next day I get to work and my boss is like looking tired. He's like, I've been up since 3 a.m. It's <laughs> like, headline news to Today Show and in Good Morning America is on the phone. Wow. He's like, we got the computer set up. You're interviewing for headline news. And sure enough, on headline news, you know, the he, the interviewer kind of did try to take it in some weird areas. But I stayed on my message. Thank God a room out for that. And I stayed on my message. And um, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful she called me. I'm so grateful that I realized that. And um, Antoine and Leonard and I um, got a lot of attention and got to talk about the CCC. Increased, like, temporarily increased the CCC recruitment by a phenomenal percentage. Well, and I remember when I first saw the video, at that point, it had already been, you know, viewed millions of times on your page. Yeah. But I also saw it then hit mainstream. And, I mean, you mentioned the uh, the, the media that contacted you, but also touch on, I mean, how, I mean, it spread nationwide. Worldwide. Worldwide. It, it was Australian news, Russian news, like people from Kazakhstan would, were hitting me right. up, telling me they saw it. I was like, right. Kazakhstan? So uh, it was a really interesting lesson in how the internet works for me, how social media works, because at mm-hmm. that time I had spent like years and years and years in the woods and, you know, writing my book and not really tapped into social media. So it was like super surprising for me. Life-changing. Life-changing for me and for Antoine and Leonard. You know, it, it was um, it was life-changing for all of us, and it brought us close together. I'm still really close with um, Leonard and Antoine. In fact, I officiated the wedding of Antoine and his high school sweetheart last year. That's awesome. And um, did a lot of dancing at their wedding. <laughs> There's a video on my YouTube <laughs> right. channel if you want to check that right. out. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> so, yeah, I'm still really close to them. And it's it's fascinating, too, because where you talked about when all of this was going down, you didn't quite have a grasp on social media. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, today, I mean, your page is one of the most entertaining that I, I often go to. Yeah. And, and it's just, like I said, you, you do it in such a way where it's just authentic. And that's what I think just attracts so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, in going in, so, so you have this video that just literally explodes across the world. Yeah. And at that point, everybody's contacting you. Mm-hmm. What what position did that put you now in with, you know, the CCC and then other opportunities that started coming your way because of that? Well, it's interesting because the CCC, like I had all the core program people, we've known each other for years and stuff like that. And so 
like they kind of looked at me like, oh, so you think you're bad now? Right. <laughs> you know, so like they weren't, the they weren't they, nearly as impressed. The ones that kept you grounded, <laughs> yeah, like, no. oh yeah, they were like, uh-uh, they, like, no, yeah, right. they're like, go ahead and get that chainsaw and fill right. it up. You know, like, right. no, no, <laughs> they weren't. Right. They they were they kept it real and they kept it authentic. Let me tell you. Right. Um, but as far as everyone else is concerned, <laughs> um, it was a really good opportunity for me to talk about what works for developing youth. You know, I got to talk about core programs. I got to talk about wildlife conservation. I got to talk about the things that I'm passionate about, that I've always talked about, diversity and inclusion in the conservation movement. Um, I got to talk about being empathetic and taking compassionate action, which is something that has been like my fuel and my engine since my grandma and mom put it there. That's wonderful. That's, I mean, it's, and that's what I've always seen, you know, and just kind of following along, you know, your work. And it's you've just always kept to that passionate, you know, element of, you know, what you want to do with it. Mm-hmm. And so many people you see just have, you know, a, a personal agenda or they make it about them. And, you know, just just telling you, I mean, I've always, you know, noticed that about you is you've always been so unselfish. You've always been, you know, one of the people that has said, sign me up for anything or just, you know, to give back and give your time, your your effort. Uh, it's just you've always just kept it 100. And You know, a lot of it is it's like we have this weird, especially men, like we we haven't really addressed a lot of like men's issues in our society, even though we think men issues have always been the default. It hasn't been authentically looking at men's issues. And so um, where I'm going with that is part of the reason why I was angry when I was a teenager was because I was sensitive. Mm-hmm. And so um, I didn't like the way I was being raised. I didn't like what I was being taught. I didn't like the way I was being treated. And I was sensitive to that. And so like my way of you know being a 15-year-old with few resources and experiences, my way of dealing with that was to be angry and to exaggerate masculinity, get into fights, get high, whatever. But that was, and so you look at me and like, look at this tough little, like rough kid. That was a sensitive kid. Um, And so, but I was unable to communicate, you know, what was bothering me. Um, And then the men of my life were never trained to listen to that kind of stuff. So, uh, and so I did, so I like built this like tough guy image around that and did the shit that would convince everybody of that to keep everything away from me as a self-protection you know mechanism right so as i got older that sensitivity um i realized that it's empathy and so like i can look at um when i look at suffering it bothers me and i want to fix it you know i don't it's right i can feel the pain i feel like you know I feel the pain in wildlife when they're losing their habitat. I want to help them. They're, they they don't know how to communicate. They have no voice, you know, in our systems. And so I want to be their voice. Um, there's people from distressed communities, young people from distressed communities that don't have the tools and resources to express their anger, their sensitivity. Um, and so they're going to have a very hard time going from, you know, poverty class to a job where – and jobs built on middle-class culture. And right. they've never had that. So they need someone to – um, they need lots of people to help them navigate middle class culture in order to keep their job. You know, and that's right. what core programs do. And so, like, that sensitivity that I had when I was younger has turned into empathy. And I think that more, um, we need to put more value on empathy. 
And um, that's what, and so when we see men being sensitive when they're kids and we're like, that's a weakness, don't show that, don't show that weakness, that's, you know, that's some bitch shit or whatever. Um, That's empathy. And we need to build that. We need to mentor that. We need to cultivate that because that, that sensitive kid, if taught that that is empathy, turns into a solutionary. Yeah. And we need solutionaries. I agree with you 100%. I think that. Uh, it's something that as a father now myself, I, you know, am trying to build things into my kids or experiences or it's interesting because I look at, you know, when I when we when we're walking and we see something, I, I use those as opportunities to teach them a lesson, mm-hmm. you know, where if somebody, you know, one of the biggest issues we have today is homelessness. Mm-hmm. So if if we're out and, you know, we see somebody who's homeless I find myself taking it as an opportunity to teach my kids empathy Mm -hmm. and saying that that's somebody's daughter or or son Mm -hmm. or, you know, letting them know that there's many things that have gone on in a person's life so they get to that point. Mm -hmm. And you're you're 100% right. Um, Unfortunately, I see that we're so polarized today that so many people are just unwilling to have conversations because they are set in their ways. Mm -hmm where I've always thrived in, a, in an environment where I welcome somebody that doesn't have the same opinion as, as I do, because mm-hmm. I look at that as an opportunity to come together. Yeah. And I tell them, so if, if you're over here and I'm over here, well, what's the middle look like for us? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? And I think that if more of that went on, then we, it would be so much better and we could accomplish so much more. And part of that would be like, um, like in, you know, like in uh, mediation one on one, they talk about finding your common ground. Mm-hmm. You know, finding the common ground. And so, like a lot of times, like a lot of our hot button issues, like how to deal with immigration, how to deal with homelessness, how to deal with that or that, um, the environment. Like we can take it back and relate to each other on an empathy level at some point. Mm-hmm. Like if we if we could get real and say like, you know, how concerned about this are you? How, how concerned are you about the homeless? You know, like most people aren't going to say, oh, we well, I think we should round them up to you know, ship them off to an island or whatever. Most people are going to be like, yeah, well, I feel sorry for them, but. Okay, well, let's just all establish the we feel their pain, like we like acknowledge them as humans and feel their pain. Okay, so like now we're talking about solutions. We all agree that we care about them. So like, how are we? You know, some of us more than others, right? But how are we going to help them? Are we going to ignore them? Are we going to like n- now? Let's be real about the solutions. And I think that a lot of times now that we just like um, we argue and are divided over like the tactics or the solutions or the strategies, but we like need to take it all the way back to the empathy. Like we do care you know, about these issues. And so that's where we're coming from. We're all coming out of the carrying. So like the person who's like, you know, super conservative on the other side, they're not evil. Right. You know, they have a different solution. <laughs> the liberal person over there is not evil. They have a different solution. But right. you guys are coming from the same empathetic spot. You're right. And maybe it's because we're getting older and, you know, we look at things because everything is so political and polarized today. And you're right. I mean, I just I've always I've never approached any situation politically because mm-hmm. whenever I hear somebody do that, it's such a big sign of weakness to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's crazy that whenever somebody approaches me with something or something that I say or I'm involved with, and, it, and if anybody comes to me from a political angle first, mm-hmm. I just shut off because I already see that that is such a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. I mean, because in my mind, I'm like, fuck left, fuck right. This mm-hmm. is team human, yeah, yeah, like yeah, you yeah. said. And I just I, I, I hope we get to a point where we break that. And I try to do things every day in my own life. And, you know, like I said, in, in teaching my kids that 
because ultimately, you know, life is so short, man. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. It's scary mm-hmm. that, you know, we're not here that long. No, I know you really start to set in when you're around 50. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh my gosh. Well, it's a trip because I remember being young and let's just say 15 years old. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I could live my whole life again and I'm going to be 30. Mm-hmm. And then you get to 25 or 30 and then it's like, Oh man, if I live my whole life now, I'm at almost 60. Mm-hmm. It's a trip, man. Yeah. And where I'm at today, I'm like, whoa, I'm at the halfway point or maybe more. Yeah. So it's important, but you're absolutely right, man. And I just, you know, you, you touched on, you know, all of the obstacles and challenges that you were able to overcome. You had people in your life that were always rooting for you, that stood by you no matter what. You came across an opportunity with the CCC that, you know, arguably changed your life mm-hmm. and saved it. For sure did, yeah. And then you used all of those opportunities to get to a point to not only better yourself, but now give back. And I just think that that's a beautiful thing. And you said it earlier, there are so many people out there going through that right now. Mm-hmm. There are so many people that need help. There are so many people that just feel stuck and they don't know what to do. And apathetic. There's a and lot apathetic. of people who feel apathetic, and right. it's and it's and that's a, a really important thing to address. And, and you know, I hope the parents and the grandparents are listening to this, and just the older people listen to this. Like, we, if you think, of, I work with Generation Z now, so I work with Generation the Millennials all from the beginning to the end. Now I'm working with Generation Z, and um, people talk a lot of mess about them, but I, I've, a lot of the like headlines I see about the studies on Millennials and Generation Z, I don't agree with a lot of them. You know, like I don't think they're the super entitled generation. In fact, you know, like if we were going to put that label on anybody, I'd put that on the boomers. You know, like, yeah, well, I always say, <laughs> so you know, like, you I know. hear all this shit being talked about Millennials. Well, you raised us, motherfuckers. Yeah, I know, yeah, <laughs> you right. know, so I mean, that's not to yeah. that's not to throw you know shade yeah. at anybody, but yeah, I think it's just another example of. Of passing the buck or, you know, attacking yeah. instead of just saying, hey, you know. Yeah, and if they are apathetic, here's why. Like, this is my casual observance. I haven't done any huge studies on this or anything. So this is just, you know, this is right. me what I, from working with youth my whole entire life. Um, they live in a totally different world than I grew up in. Sure. Okay, so they have, like, tons more access to information and conspiracies and weird stuff. And they've seen all their adults in their life shrug off you know like three apocalypses now so right. it was like um it's like oh we're all gonna die y2k right it's like oh okay nothing happened <laughs> <laughs> okay oh but now it's really bad because it's the super recession right. <laughs> bright orange colors right. and music in the background and like nothing really changed okay well now how about the mayan calendar ended 2012 oh never mind okay oh but climate change is going to kill us all oh no this is going to kill us all Oh, you know, what's the big point? We're all going to die anyways. They've seen the adults in their life shrug off apocalypses and be like, oh, we're all going to die. So it's like it's hard for them to, like, take things seriously or to, like, feel like, you know, if it's not one thing, it's another. So, you know, we've kind of created this, you know, we've, like – you can only get excited about things so many times. Yeah, no, you're, <laughs> you know? you're right. And so I think what's happened is like a lot of them are, they're not bandwagony as the boomers were. The boomers were super bandwagony and they got information out there and they're like, we got to protest this. And I'm like, yeah, we got to protest and maybe smoke some pot, yeah. listen to music at the same time. And they were out there, you know, it was their very bandwagony. Generation X was kind of bandwagony too. 
this generation, not so much. Yeah, no. and I think also, you know, back then, there, you know, the, the few sources to get information out, you know, you were either huddled around, you know, a radio, a television, some mm-hmm. media channels that Can't were fire. controlled exactly, yeah. where now Can't there's fire. just so much coming mm-hmm. at people that it's hard to just process. Yeah, yeah. and there's the amount of advertisements they see exactly. like in a day. It's like twice as much as people saw like 30 or 40 years ago. So they're they're kind of like burnout on our shit. Right. And so um, they're taking a different route and... So I don't think they're apathetic because they're choosing to be apathetic. I think it's if you're not apathetic, you're going out of your mind. Yeah, and I think it's also an opportunity for everybody to kind of look back at each other's story and build a respect. So for our generation today to look back and Mm -hmm. really not only understand but to learn about the struggles that our relatives from the past went through Mm – that would help gain a level of respect to say, wow, vice versa, you know, the older generations can look ahead and say, wow, this is an incredible time to be alive. We're way more efficient. Mm -hmm. We have tools that we could literally, you know, put out and talk to someone across the world in in a millisecond. And, you know, it's just, I think that there's different ways to build opportunity. With, With everything that we've touched on, and as we talked about, there are so many people that, you know, are going through things or mm-hmm. looking for an avenue like the CCC mm-hmm. or, you know, a mentor or a positive influence. What would you say are some easy ways that people can get started or help? Well, before I get to that, let me tell you that I'm optimistic about the future because of the millennials and Generation Z. Um because of their quote-unquote apathy, what people call apathy, they're not going to be nearly as divisive as the people who are in power right now, the boomers in Generation X. They're not going to be that divisive. They're way more likely to have a conversation about things and to research it. Um, they will Google stuff before they get out there and like spout some crazy opinion as if it's truth and try to convince all of us you know, that it is too. So I think the checks and balances are going to be better when they're in power. I think the conversation is going to be more civil. I'm super optimistic about Generation Z and millennials and anybody who thinks that they're going to make the society worse, you're wrong. Yeah. I think they're going to make it better. Yep. I agree. And as far as what people can do, that's another thing about Generation Z and millennial. They want to know what they can do. Like right. they, they don't want to jump on the bandwagon and, and have a protest as much as they want to implement solutions, which is another thing I like about these young people. So um, I have a Facebook group called Griff Wild Tips if people are interested in just how they can help wildlife from home. Because the most important, you know, one of the best ways to help wildlife, and we have an extinction crisis, you know, across the board. There's very few animals that are doing better except for like the ones that do well with humans like roaches and rats and pigeons and things like that. Right. But – um. Just by planting the plants that are native to your region is a great way to help all wildlife because bugs aren't um, just eating anything. 95% of our insects are dependent on the plants that they evolved with, the native plants. And so the more native plants you have, the more caterpillars you have, the more butterflies you have. Okay, like People are like, I don't want insects in my yard. Roaches and mosquitoes don't give a shit about your native plant. It's the moths and butterflies that do. And so... They have caterpillars, and 95% of our songbirds, all of our songbirds, 95% of our birds, period, feed caterpillars to their young. So by planting native plants, you support native insects, which are all on the decline. All the you know really cool native insects are on decline because of pesticides and habitat removal. So if you plant native plants, you get your butterflies. No one's mad at butterflies in your yard. <laughs> no one came to your house and was like, oh, dude, I was right. going to hang out with you, but you got all these <laughs> butterflies and shit in your yard. I'm out. 
And then, so the more butterflies you have, the more birds you have. No one's mad at birding in your yard either. You got all these blue and red birds in your yard, man. I'm gone. You know, <laughs> right. like no one cares. They, they, they like birds in your yard. They like butterflies in your yard. That's a good thing. You plant native plants, you get those things. Skip Home Depot. Go to your native plant nursery. Get native plants. Plant them. That's the easiest way you can help wildlife. Instant. Doesn't even cost very much. I mean, you can grab an acorn out the park and plant it in your yard as long as it's a native oak. Yeah. So I think that's the mo- that's what people can do. Um, another thing is to whatever you think is wrong in society and is wrong with other people, look for it in yourself first. You know, because it's more important for you to change things in yourself than it is to change the person next to you. And chances are the person next to you ain't going to change no matter what you say. Right. So, like, if you think there's too much divisiveness in the world, see how you are perpetuating that and then stop it. Um, I think that there's a million things that people can do. Some of them are intrinsic, like finding out if you're the one who's being divisive. If you're, like, laughing at people's comments on Facebook and you're, you're not part of the discussion, you're not part of the solution. If you're calling people names, you're not part of the solution, you're not part of the discussion. You're, no one's going to take you seriously. Um, so I think that just being a good human, being more empathetic, taking compassionate action, and what your compassionate action can look like is up to you, but there's a lot of resources that can help you. Um, I want people to help wildlife and youth. So you can definitely look up um, the core programs, the corenetwork.org, C-O-R-P-S-N-E-T-W-O-R-K.org. Um, even if you're not 18 and 25, you know someone who's 18 and 25. And most core programs pay and provide scholarships. So that's a good way you can be part of the solution is to tell young people, even if they're not your relative, about core programs. I think that's wonderful, man. And, you know... It's just the power of the outdoors is so much bigger than I think people really understand. Um, You and I have talked about, you know, how it helped us, but Mm -hmm. that's the beauty of it is for some it's, you know, awe-inspiring, for some it's it's life-changing, and for some it's Mm life-saving. And that's the beauty of the outdoors. It's, It's there. And it can create many different opportunities for people, no matter what they're going through. And I know we got to wrap up, but before that, I want you to tell everyone how they can find you and follow all of your work. Okay, so I'm always uh, I'm always trying to find ways and inform you know myself and others uh, about what problems are, so we can find out what the solutions are. And so, if you are into that, please follow me on my Facebook at uh, John Griff Griffith, or you can put an at Griff Wild on Facebook, and you can find me there. Um, I'm also on Instagram at the Nature Nut, and that's mostly on, uh, on Instagram. Is mostly me and my core members like making little discoveries and doing weird stuff, sometimes dancing, <laughs> right. whatever. Um, so Facebook, um, I'm on YouTube. You can just put in John Griffith, and you can go to and you can find me on YouTube. And I post on YouTube still. Like sometimes it's dance, sometimes it's animal stuff. It could be just random. Um, that's probably the easiest way to get hold of me. And, you know, what you said, I, on each of your platforms, you know, you've always made sure to put value. You've, it's positive, and that's what I love about it. And, again, man, you know, just, you know, looking at it, it's, you've, always, you've always been, you know, one of the real ones. And, you know, just thank you for all of that. You know, in, in not only sharing your story, it means so much. And, you know, I, again, I, I talk about it in – I've always believed, and as I get older, it's even more true that I, I truly believe that every single one of us has a story that could help others. Mm-hmm. And uh, I appreciate you sharing yours because it's it's great to see how your life has evolved into 
you know, a, a, a situation now where you're helping so many and not only that, but how at each point, you know, you've, you've used it as a way to continue to do good. So thank you for that. Yeah. And uh, really appreciate you being on here today. Awesome. Thanks for creating this platform so we can have these discussions. Thank you very much for being on here. Ladies and gentlemen, John Griffith, also known as Griff. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Robert Hanna Show. Follow us on social media and be sure to check out the website at hannaman247.com.